Do you like candles? We all know that I love candles and I love the candles from Remy Moon. They are an Australian based small business and they make the best and most magical candles. All of their candles are made with high vibes, pure intentions, and each one is crafted with a little bit of Reiki healing that also suits the intention of the candle itself. All their candles are non-toxic and vegan, so they don't harm us or the animals. You can use the code SUBURBANWITCH for 15% off all of their products, and it's only for listeners of the Witch Talks podcast. Simply head to remymoon.com.au to get your candles now. Welcome to Witch Talks, the series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, professional tarot reader, astrologer, and witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. Hello, and welcome back to the Witch Talks podcast. I'm your host, Hannah O'Neill, which I don't often say Hannah O'Neill, do I? Which I'm also known as Hannah the Suburban Witch. Now, today, I'm starting a new segment called Hannah Help Me, and I'm so excited to be able to use this time to answer your questions, because not only does it help you guys, but it also helps everyone else who's listening that may have either encountered that problem or that question before, too. So, here we go. Today's question comes in from Candice. Now, Candice is a one of my members on my private membership group, which is currently at the time of recording called Patreon, but I am just a sneaky side thing. I am hoping to move it off Patreon somewhere else um, on my own website because I did not realize what the fees were like on Patreon. I never really looked at it because you don't have to pay an upfront fee. They just sort of take fees from what you get, but holy crap, they're taking thousands (laughs) per year. I didn't realize. So, (sighs) Here is for up-leveling, and I'm really grateful to the website designer that I've hired, which is a scary big business expense, but look at me go, Um, because she brought that up, and I managed to compare the two and realized just how expensive it is to have a Patreon page. So if you're listening to this in the future, it will be called something else. I don't have a name yet, but currently my private membership group is on or through Patreon. So Candice has said, from a newbie perspective... Can you assist with some advice on divination uses for mugwort? Also, does it go off or stale as a dried herb? Can it lose its potency? So, excellent question. And with mugwort, I need to caveat this with the fact that if you are pregnant or breastfeeding, this is not a safe herb for you to be around. I don't even want you touching it, smelling it, going near it whatsoever. Now, mugwort is an amenagogue and a pretty powerful one of that. And an amenagogue is basically for people who menstruate. It is something that is going to increase blood flow to your pelvic region. It can induce a bleed. I've used it myself because sometimes my period will be late or have a longer, I have a longer cycle. I'm trying to get it back in, back into that 28 day section. Um, it just randomly went off the rails, um, after some grief last year, which can happen. And we do talk about that in an upcoming episode that I'm going to be doing later on. Stay tuned. However, uh, I've used it myself. I have a mugwort plant at home. I talked to my mugwort plant and I just literally took one leaf and this was a fresh leaf, not dried and just said, I'm needing to bring on my period. It's it's not quite regular. We're trying to bring that a little bit closer. 
please, can you help me with this? And I'm not kidding. This was so freaking weird. I went inside and told my husband, I was like, I'm going to sound like a crazy person, but I was talking to my mugwort plant and I went to pick the leaf and I hadn't even touched it yet. The mugwort plant turned. It's like this long spindly thing kind of leans over, turned and got got stuck in my hair. It was like it was patting me. <laughs> it felt like the spirit of the plant was coming along and patting me, but it was physically like stuck in my hair at that point. And I sort of moved it off and I just was really surprised. I was like, did you just pat me? <laughs> Thank you. Um, took my my leaf and put it into my tea and I mixed it with some red raspberry leaf and drank that. I got my period the next day. So wonderful for me. However, not wonderful if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. Breastfeeding because we just don't know effects in um, babies and coming through the milk. So if you are pregnant or breastfeeding or trying to become pregnant, I would just ignore this herb completely. Now that we've got that out of the way uh, and a little bit of a story on how I use it, it is a really powerful herb for increasing your psychic abilities. It is just wonderful and we can use it dried, fresh, you can burn it, whatever you want to do with it. If you're burning it, I'd burn the dried herb. Now, once it's dried, depending on how it's been dried, it's going to take maybe one to four years sort of storage level, right? So you don't want to buy a whole heap and then not use it in time. And this goes for most dried herbs. Now, if they're past their point of being able to be used medicinally or herbally in terms of in teas, in tinctures and tonics and balms, those sorts of things, then what you can do is just use it magically. The essence and the spirit of the herb is still there. So the magic possibilities do not wane in their potency, but their herbal healing benefits do. If you have a lot and you know you're not going to use it, then I always recommend potentially making an oil infusion with it or a tincture. A tincture is an extract of the herb using alcohol. Now, I like to drink a cup of mugwort tea before bed if I'm wanting to open up my oniromancy, which is dream divination or dream communication. Sometimes I will drink it just before I am going to do some dark mirror scrying, some black mirror scrying with my black obsidian mirror. And sometimes I actually use it to wash my black obsidian mirror and just infuse it with those properties of opening up to what's beyond. It can be ritually burned again, with the dried herb to bring in those magical properties that we associate with it. Now, the scientific or the botanical name for mugwort is Artemisia vulgaris. Artemisia. Hmm. What does that remind us of? If you said Artemis, you would be correct. And Artemis was a Greek goddess, sometimes known as a protector of uh, young women, children, women in labor, which I mean, tracks totally. And it's often used historically. We saw people using it to ward off evil, right? So using it in protection. You may want to put a sprig of mugwort above a doorway or burn the herb throughout your house as a form of both cleansing and protection. It's also really great at keeping creepy crawlies away as it has a natural insecticide in it. I also like to use mugwort if I have a cold and a really sore throat. I'll just put a little bit of a leaf in there and I found that that really helps me. And also really great if you get really cold feet and bad circulation there, popping in a little foot bath for yourself. So make a little charm bag and pop some in there as a herb to help you with your dreams, to increase lucid dreaming, or just to increase communication and hang or use it as a way to protect your home and yourself. And of course, in anything regarding your menstruation. I hope this helps Candice. Now, if you have a question that you would like answered, you can either email me suburbanwitchery at gmail.com 
or you can DM me uh, or you become one of my members in my private membership group. Again, currently Patreon, but that will change in the future. So you just have to be willing to shift over at some point. Um, but I will be giving the people in my private membership group uh, the, the privilege of having their questions answered first. And now to get to our guest. So we have Mortalis joining us again. And this was heavily requested that they come back. Um, but it was also one of those episodes that many people chose not to listen to because it was a little bit too much for them. And I get that. We're talking about death and death related stuff. It can be a little bit scary. Um, but I promise you that Mortalis has such a strong ethical principle and boundary in everything that they do and say. And we can't shy away from death, right? It is everywhere. It is all around us. It is part of life. And to ignore it means that we are actually ignoring a part of life and we can't live it fully. So that's my wisdom to you all today. And let's get into it. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mortalis, an internationally recognized expert in the field of pagan funeral rites. They are a lineage third degree gardenerian high priestess, mortician, medium, necromancer, and witch. I'm so looking forward to sharing Mortalis's wisdom with you yet again for season two of the Witch Talks podcast. It's very, very exciting. And we had a lot of people requesting that they come back on. If you haven't listened, Mortalis was on episode five of season one. So you can pop back and listen to that if you wish. Otherwise, you don't need to have prior knowledge to listen to this one either. So listen out of order, up to you. Now, Mortalis is joining us via Zoom all the way from North Carolina. How are you today, Mortalis? Oh gosh, it's manic and busy and just a lot of new stuff going on. So I'm tired, but happy to be here. I had so many people asking me to come back on just like you did. And I'm, I'm always happy to come chat with you, Hannah. Hearts from America, my, my bestie over there. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that by doing that first, that episode together, we have developed this wonderful friendship that spans across the oceans and We've sent each other like little care packages. My kids are still coloring in in the North Carolina Caroling in book, which I wish we had something like that. I don't think we do. I don't, I'm going to have to look for like a Brisbane <laughs> or Australian. I'm sure there's an Australian one, maybe a bluey one. Is there never a bluey I, I had so much fun finding those things. Like I, when I found the coloring book, that's how I learned that my state has two state berries, <laughs> that there was like a, 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 a debate between groups over what berry could be our, our state fruit. <laughs> so we have a, a state red berry and a state blue berry. <laughs> funny. And I don't even know if our state, I know our states have flowers, but gosh, it's a good way to learn about where you come from. P.S. Um, I've just bought this new mug on the weekend and I have to show it off to you because oh. it's a Thoth mug. Oh, I love it. Oh, it's so cute. Again, if you're on YouTube, you get to see stuff. So it's got um, Thoth there, which if anyone's listening, you might know that is the deity that I work with. And it's got uh, both the Egyptian name, Tehuti, and Thoth and Neder Aset. And there's like all the words at the bottom. It says divine scribe, recorder of time, divine word and truth. Like it's, and the, this was the only one that was there. I was like, this is so random and rare and I have to have it. This is now my this is my mug and I'm so excited to use it. <laughs> I love that. I had a similar experience the other day. Your poor audience. I think we're being some boring darks, but uh, I'd gone to the market and someone was shelving goods or whatever and they had this eyeshadow palette and they 
were putting it on the shelf. It was the only one. Uh, they later informed me they got no more and they never got any after. It was the only one they ever had, but the color was called Underworld. And I was like, oh, I have to... That's what oh. I'm wearing. It's the oh. Underworld eyeshadows. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's so funny when those random things happen. Just, just those little random things. And I think sometimes the universe does put that in place, even as small as this, right? I just bought some new weights, some little dumbbells uh, to do my Pilates at home with. And my daughter must have found them because I didn't know they were on the floor behind my desk chair. So they just sort mm-hmm. of drop there and they're two kilos each. So they're, which I think is one kilo is 2.2 pounds. So they're about 4.4 pounds each. And I stood up from my desk and I was looking for something. I was like, where on earth is my unpicker? Cause I was, I stitched something not quite right. I'm like, where is this unpicker? And of course I tripped over one of these dumbbells and it hurt my tongue. I was like, oh my gosh. But where I sort of fell on the ground was my hand was right next to the unpicker. I was like, oh, I wouldn't have seen that because it matches my rug and I would maybe have stood on it and hurt myself. But instead I've kind of got a sore toe, but I found it exactly where I've landed. So it was kind of like, a, oh, thank you. That was kind of fortuitous. <laughs> I'm very glad you didn't get terribly hurt. That's... <laughs> I know. We're going to have to have chats about heavy things on the floor when mommy doesn't see them. <sighs> but it's the funniest stuff that will <laughs> cause serious injuries. And my spouse back over the holidays was peeling potatoes and the vegetable peeler caught the end of their finger. And it was the tiniest shallowest cut like the size of a, a ladybug or a ladybird or, or whatever um but it bled so much because he, he nipped the artery Yo. so we, we had to sit and put pressure on it i was like if we have to drive to the emergency room for this tiny little so <laughs> mm-hmm. silly i did that recently what did i do where was i i feel like oh that's right we went we went on a holiday a family holiday so my mom my stepdad my brother my husband and kids we went on this family holiday for my mum's 60th. We went to far north Queensland. It is like incredibly hot and humid there, Cairns and the Daintree Rainforest. And I think on day one, I sliced my finger open and I can't for the life of, oh, I remember what I did. I was like, how did I do that? Day one, morning one, I go to put my makeup on or do my hair, whatever I was doing. I put my hand into my makeup bag and I didn't realise that my razor was in there. And it's like, it's not a safety razor. It's the one where you change the full blades yourself, reusable forever, metal heavy thing. And Ben had just put new razors in for me because he's like, oh, she needs a nice sharp one. Whoa. So it got right, yeah, tip of my finger and it bled a lot. It just went poof, so, so deep so quickly. And I was so shocked because I didn't know what had happened. I was like, ah, my finger hurts, there's blood everywhere. So I was like, of course, day one, this happens. Um, but thankfully it was okay. And it didn't hurt too much when I was swimming. Although um, little, what's the word, icky warning coming up. Um, when we went and swam in the Great Barrier Reef and snorkeled there, I could feel the flap of skin like moving through the water. Ugh. It didn't hurt. But it was really like, oh, this is kind of gross. I don't want to think about it. Well, for everyone listening, good, good first aid for those kinds of injuries. Make sure you hold it above your heart and press it with three pounds of pressure, which is more than you think. It's enough to hurt a little. And if you hold it like that for three minutes, you'll stop the bleeding. So I think I did that. I'm pretty sure I put a little bit of towel there, held it right on top of my head and just rested it there whilst I sat on the couch going, ah, I hope I don't need it. Cause I hadn't really looked at it. I'm like, mate, do I have to go and get this looked at? But 
I didn't. I've had previous injuries before. Where I've had to go and get it like glued together, but this one was okay. I can't even see which finger it was now. Now, see here in the rural southern United States, we would just get some super glue. <laughs> we would just do it. <laughs> yeah, look, I probably would do that if I was at home, but I was in like an Airbnb, which makes it hard because you're like, I don't. There's nothing here. And then just to talk about further injuries whilst I was there, because random things seem to happen to me. Uh, One of my other friends who I've had on a couple of times on the podcast, Amy, every time I say, oh my gosh, this happened. She's like, of course it did. Of course it happened. (laughs) That sort of stuff just happens. But I got stung by an unknown jellyfish whilst snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef. We wore stinger suits because there are box jellyfish, irikanji, like blue bottles, very deadly jellyfish there. And it was jellyfish season. So you wear stinger suits, which cover all of your main organs and things. You kind of have your neck and face not covered and your hands and feet not covered. And somehow I got stung on my tiny little toe. And I thought I'd broken my toe. When I went to my doctors, I was like, I can't move it. It is so swollen. It is incredibly painful. Um, I've obviously broken my toe. <laughs> he had a look. He's like, nope, this is this is a sting, most likely a jellyfish sting. So um, it had hurt like that for three and a half weeks and then just went away. So fun little fact about North Carolina. We have freshwater jellyfish here and they're just in like the lakes and streams and they're very small. They're quite cute actually, but they sting horribly. (laughs) So uh, in certain seasons of the year, you have to be very careful about it. New fear unlocked. I did not know. (laughs) It's actually, I don't think they're really anywhere else in the world. I mean, there are a few rare like lakes, but here in North Carolina, it's just like a regional thing, but freshwater jellies. No, thank you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm dying to ask you if it's okay. Um, So I did a mediumship reading for you recently and there was an experience from that. And I wondered how that all shook out. (laughs) Mm. We talked about a lot. So we did a mediumship reading and it went a little bit over because there was a lot coming through um so I'm curious what parts you were referring to but I'm happy to share a few things that popped out from that reading oh I was thinking about the car that just yeah yeah yeah, that part Mm. so uh Mortalis picked up for my grandparents that my grandfather was almost like this protective spirit around our home you know checking things you know making sure things were safe practically sort of like walking around the outside of the property. That's sort of the image. And if anything wasn't safe, if he needed to get our attention, um, paper would be pushed onto the ground, you know, like uh, pushed off a shelf or a bench or something. And And who notices when you have kids, right? (laughs) Exactly. And Mortalis even said, oh, I'm picking up the paper because it's related to timber, to wood. And my grandfather was a furniture maker and a cabinet maker. He had a very you know, strong affinity to timber and wood. So I remember telling my husband the next day, I was like, oh, this is, you know, obviously this is all the stuff that happened. This is what we talked about, blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of just, we didn't talk about it again. Just, you know, just, it's one of those experiences you, you sit on, you mull on, you might write notes on, but it's not an active part of conversation. And I reckon it was three months after we chatted. Cause I, I think I booked you during the eighth house solar transit in my chart. So about three months later, my husband goes to leave for work and he's off. I'm at home with the kids and I think I was on the phone to my friend. I was just chatting away and it had been maybe an hour since he left. 
when suddenly I hear this like power drill and it is really close. And I'm like, this, what? Like, is someone out the front of our house? Like, this is so, it sounds like it's in my house. So I went to investigate. It's like, I'm just going to keep you on the call just in case something's happening. Someone's trying to break into my garage. I opened the garage and there's Ben, my husband, changing a tire of his car. And I was like, what are you still doing here? And he sort of looked over. He's like, the weirdest thing happened. I'm like, okay, <laughs> tell me. And he said in the morning, he'd noticed things being sort of like falling off the shelves or pushed off the shelves. And as he was sort of putting them back, he was like, oh, maybe that's Opa, my grandfather. Okay. Walked into the garage and I think there was more things on the ground and it wasn't specifically just paper, but just whatever was there. And it kind of made him go, oh, okay, something's up. I'm going to go investigate. And he just had a look at the car and the back tire, the one that he'd just taken off to change, he ended up changing all of them. But that back tire, and I don't know, I'm not a car person. There's like the outside round bit that's flat. And then there's the two sides to it. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. And the where they meet <laughs> kind of makes a corner on a round tire where they meet was it looked like it was unraveling. Like there was, it's like someone had torn a gash through this section of the tire. Like that's how weak it was there. And I'm like, that, that would have, like he has a 40 minute drive to work that absolutely could have burst and caused an accident or all sorts of things. And he just said, Opa was obviously looking out for us. And he goes, I remembered what Mortalis had said. And I'm like, thank you for A, listening when I tell you stuff, B, actually believing because if anyone's listened to my episode with him, he was very skeptical before we got together. And obviously now there's been, he's like, there's been enough things now that I know to trust it. And I know to listen to my intuition. And when I look at his palm as well, your spouse and mine are quite a lot alike, quite a lot. When I looked at Ben's palm, oh, years ago, years and years ago, five, six years ago, he didn't have an intuition line, which is sort of where our pinky is kind of comes down on an angle. There was none there at all. I was like, oh, okay, you don't really have an <laughs> line. And he was like, oh, recently that line has shown up on his hand because the lines on our hands change. And it's really interesting to see that developing as he is trusting himself more, as he is opening himself up to it. So it's really intriguing. So, yeah, that was fun. So that was very, very interesting. That um, I'm just glad it kept you safe. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what matters here. <laughs> yeah. And there was no some, gra- some other, grandpa. <laughs> thank you. There were some other like amazing things. I wanted to talk about that actually, because I've had a couple of mediumship readings. I've done mediumship development, development myself, but you used a technique I've literally never heard anyone do, seen anyone do ever. I felt so bad because I was like, they're going to have to see my nonsense. <laughs> they're going to be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Fascinating. So you said you you were automatic typing, so automatic writing. You just let things flow out. Yeah, just type while I read. Yeah, and then any repeating a repeating word, you took that, changed it into binary, which I don't even know how you do. So ones and zeros, and then popped that into an AI art generator. And what came up was so incredibly relevant to what we were talking about. It blew my mind. It blew my mind. I've never seen someone using technology in that aspect but I think it is really clever and really interesting and how did you find that technique? When I was younger I used to do a lot of automatic writing before I really understood what I was doing when I was very young um, 
then I wouldn't have had words for it. Today, I would have said I, I was channeling poetry. It was just automatic writing poetry. Uh, whatever came out wasn't mine at all. And I understood that when I was young, but today I would use different words for it, right? But um, so it's always kind of been part of my practice. And since the pandemic, I've done a ton of readings in this format, right? Like over Zoom. So that demands new things of you. And for a while I would keep a notepad and what I would do is keep my focus on the person's eyes, but I would just write while we talked. But over time, I started just keeping my hands on the keyboard and having a, a text document open behind the Zoom screen so I can't see it. And I would just let my fingers go. Um, I don't know. It was sort of a, a whim one day to sort of what I would do is sort of copy paste the, the chunk of words into an alphabetizer so that I could see what was said the most. And then I would take those random words and just plug them into something to see, see what results I could find, right? Like, I like to think about things as patterns and codes. And I, I often think the dead speak to us in patterns and codes. So using that as kind of a cipher, I wanted to see what different kinds of answers I could find in that information. So taking something and converting it to binary, there are converters online, that's not very hard at all. Um, and then using those ones and zeros to create an image, just something that sort of organically happened over time. But you're right, it, it has been sort of spookily useful um, every time. And it feels like you're plugging nothing into the generator because it's, it's nonsense. But what has come out the side every time has always been just sort of eerily correct. Like in your case, it was something so specific. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. So it makes me think, um, when our spirits, the other side, whoever it is we're communicating with, people might be familiar with the term angel numbers, right? Now, I don't really get behind the general idea of angel numbers, which is, oh, I see 1111, it means this specific thing. Or I see one, two, three, four frequently, this means this specific, like you're on the right path. Those sorts of generic, vague things that are thrown around. I don't, I don't vibe with that. Uh, people may have seen my content on that before. What I do think though, is it takes a lot of energy for, let's say a, a spirit of a loved one to communicate with us. Um, more so if we are not open to it psychically, mediumistically, they might try in our dreams because we naturally sort of almost go there so we can sort of meet them on par. But otherwise they almost, I feel like they have to make themselves denser in order to communicate things across and it can be difficult. So sometimes I think they use technology because it is easier for them. So doing something like, I don't know, manipulating a little bit of the scenario so that we can see a repeating number somewhere numbers may be a little bit easier for them but i don't think the number itself has a meaning i think it's the fact that we've noticed a repeat happening a pattern and what i recommend to my students when they're taking my psychic divination course or anything like that is to notice what they were thinking about or doing at the time because often it's like you know oh maybe i should do you know i start a class for my business maybe i should do a class and then you see you know I don't know, one, one, two, two. And you're like, oh, interesting, whatever. Don't think much of it. And then later on, you're thinking 
similar what would the class be and you see 1122 again and it might not always be the time because people always go to the time or what's on the microwave but it can be on a number plate of a car going past it can be uh, something saying something on the radio it, it there's all sorts of ways numbers can come through and if you start to go hang on i'm seeing this a lot is it always when i'm thinking about opening a new class maybe okay maybe that's something i really need to put more attention behind and then focusing on that because I think that's when they're like, hello, hey, hey, big, I'm trying to give you a big thing. This is a good idea. Follow that thought or that's what you need to be focusing on. Or, you know, I think it's just a way of getting our attention, basically. So it's really interesting when you, you're you using technology in a way, because I do think for them it may be an easier medium to get behind rather than trying to get through to us either in the physical plane, which is very rare, or, you know, trying to get us to notice things because we're so busy all the time. Right? Do you know what I mean? I know I know exactly what you mean, but I have a take on this. Mm. It's it's tell. exactly what you're saying, but from a different perspective. So the we grew up in a similarly sort of Christian upbringing. Mm-mm. It was the crazy kind, everybody listening. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the the mm like holding snakes at church kind (laughs) it's like all kinds of stuff um so if anybody's been in those kinds of environments you know that that you might see someone speaking in tongues yes um but there is an earlier example of speaking in tongues than christianity were you aware i did not know that and i have thoughts on speaking in tongues as well i actually liken it similarly to people who use what they call light language i think it's the same just with a different name it sounds very similar, feels similar to me, but please tell me the, the origin story of speaking in tongues. Some of our earliest examples of speaking in tongues are from ancient, and I know that doesn't mean anything. I'll put a parenthetical around ancient, uh, from ancient Greek necromancy, channeling the dead. And the belief in that uh, particular setting was that obviously we speak a language, we're speaking English right now, and perhaps the dead speak English and perhaps they don't. But the understanding was that there is a, a barrier that confounds the language. The dead speak a common tongue in addition to their native tongue. And the language of the dead is its own. And some people can naturally understand and hear it and some cannot. If you're finding yourself having a barrier with language, you're, you're getting visuals or scent or sound, but you aren't understanding what they have to say to you, it might simply be that you aren't grasping that language that they speak. Um, and I think that when we can work with patterns like this, we can overcome that barrier. Um, a good example of that is um, NASA sent um, um, a capsule into space and they had put gold discs in it inscribed with information about humanity. And they researched trying to determine a language that any being from any place could understand. And the language they determined would be understandable was mathematics. We all understand patterns in numbers. So those thoughts combined were sort of what led me down the path of things like, let's see what binary code is for this gibberish that 
might come out in automatic writing sometimes. Because if you've tried automatic writing with mediumship, you know that sometimes what you get isn't even language. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been kind of my process there. Oh, that's so fascinating. I, I low key love the idea <laughs> that everyone in my church of origin, shall I say, is actually channeling spirits and performing mediumship at the altar. Well, don't forget that when someone speaks in tongues, you know, this growing up in church, they're channeling the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so they, <laughs> they are. If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about. So evangelical forms of Christianity, Pentecostals, uh, they have what's called the spiritual gifts is what they, it's almost like the basis of the um, theology around Pentecostal gifts of the spirit. Yes. Gifts of the spirit. And there are many, there are people who can speak in tongues and there are people that can interpret speaking in tongues. There is the gift of prophecy. That's what I had growing up because I, I had a couple of visions as a child. Um, they, Mercy. Sorry. Mercy. Mm-hmm. giving leading service exhorting teaching prophecy healing hands as well and healing hands yes the yes. on of hands that sort of thing uh it's yeah it's interesting <laughs> uh all of that and and it is preached upon heavily and even with my my grandmother growing up for her her story around learning to speak in tongues and she pretty much negotiated with god like all right this is the last time i'm trying if i don't get it now that's it. I'm off (laughs) to try and get it because it was so important to her and to the church that you'd be able to do that. Otherwise, you know, potentially you're not Christian enough or whatever it is. There was a lot of pressure around it as well, at least where I grew up. Like if someone in the congregation didn't have that gift, it was sort of, there was an emptiness around it. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, uh, idolized in a way, glamorized somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting, but I love that it links back to, to necromancy. That's just wonderful. And even this is where I start to pull apart things from the Bible as well. Everyone loves, you know, King Solomon. He's this great figure in the Bible. Crystal sure. magician. <laughs> and a medium, right? And he used crystals. His uh, crystal was lapis lazuli that he had in his ring. Um, so it's funny how it's okay when some one person does it. And uh, Joseph from Joseph and the Code of Dreams, he was an aniromancer, a dream interpreter, right? It's okay when they do it, but if I do it, it's easy. I'm, I'm sensing a distinction between them and you. Hmm. So the distinction between them and say the Witch of Endor and yeah. what might that be? <laughs> the secret for everyone listening is that you were born with a uterus. <laughs> That's the difference. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it's frustrating, frustrating hearing all of that. And even when I had that first prophecy, uh, that first vision as a child, mm-hmm. I remember telling my mum, oh no, the second vision, second vision, because the second vision was me on stage. What I thought was preaching to basically like a full sold out church sized stadium. And I was like, I'm going to be a preacher. That's what I'm here to do. And I remember going straight to my mum and saying, are women allowed to preach? Because I'd never seen it. And she's like, yeah, yeah. They just don't really. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I'll be the first or whatever, you know, because we'd see, you know, the pastor's wife get up and maybe lead everyone in prayer, but that was kind of the extent of it. 
Ah, so yes, interesting, um, interesting stuff there. We've both got a lot there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I too, um, had prophecy. Mm. As, um, I remember being very small and, um, we had someone in the church whose, um, father was quite elderly and was no longer coming to service. They were in a, in a retirement home. And they came to church on Sunday and I asked them why they were there and not with their dad. And um, they said, because, you know, I'm supposed to be at church. That's where I'm at. And I was like, but, but he's dying. And uh, they got very startled about that and they left service and he did die that morning. Mm. Uh, They made it there in time to say goodbye. And the minister found this so unsettling. Like they found it really hard to, um, cope with so they they settled on saying I had that gift the gift of prophecy because it was the most comfortable way they could deal with it yeah I didn't have a vision though I I I don't know I I sort of sensed death hanging around him mm. like like a like a like a coat hanging over him was this before or after your death experience after I presumed after but yeah so you've already got that link to i knew what death felt like Mm. and i could feel it around him Mm. yeah that's and i just sort of instinctively knew it was his father and i can't quantify why but i just did Mm. probably because he hadn't been there and he'd been ill and but um people talked about that for a little while but also i wound up on the receiving end of like an exorcism so there was a lot of witchcraft accusations when i was small especially because I had been dead for like half an hour and was definitely weirder on the other side. So it was like, yes, lay on hands and do the, the oils and all that stuff they do. It was the whole thing. Yeah. I, I too had an exorcism, exorcism like experience, but I was a bit older. I was about 14. Um, so you, I, and Devin Hunter need to get together and talk about our exorcism experiences. We need to podcast <laughs> that up. Because you two are the only ones I know, other than myself, who've been through that. I didn't. I didn't know that he had had one. So that's fascinating. Um, we need to just like podcast that. Let's we'll talk about. Yeah, absolutely, I, I reckon he'd be down for it. Absolutely. The weird thing about my one was, um, obviously, the person leading the circle that was around me had access to their psychic gifts because they did know things that they couldn't have otherwise known which to my mum was like proof that obviously this is the devil because this woman talks to to god and is getting this information from god um i now look back and go no she probably just had claircognizance or clairsentience or one of one of those activating at the time and was able to interpret it i we had a it wasn't the minister it was like a minister's wife and they could pray with someone and would know things and i they only were successful in that if they touched someone. To, I always thought they had psychometry because mm. they, they touch and a tendency. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, it's coming out of the church, especially what I deem a very psychically active church and realizing that now I'm doing all the same stuff. It just has a different name and doesn't have a religion around it or a uh, doctrine around it right it's really fascinating seeing these overlaps 
the church isn't ready for that conversation. But I think a lot of people, especially that have been in the church, are ready for that conversation. I think that's true. And especially in, in what I do, I see so many people that a resounding just ringing of a bell I hear in the back of my head is emails I get from people who left Christianity because of a bad death experience. Mm. They had a loved one die and that funeral was all about how that person was going to hell or how they had lived in sin or whatever. And then that was the breaking point. And I, I hear that every day and it, it, it breaks my heart because people shouldn't have those experiences with their loved ones, but mm. sometimes it takes something quite severe to snap us out of it. You know? Yeah. I actually want to share with you two things on that. The first was at my grandfather's funeral where they had one of his friends who was someone he preached with um, stand up and give a sermon on witchcraft while staring directly at me. And the sermon went for ages and I've also experienced that. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't about my grandfather. Why, what is, what do you, obviously he was getting, he had a very smug, like what we call a shit eating grin on his face as he stared me down. And everything in me was, I was, I was doing everything I could to not stand up, not shout at someone, which was detrimental to me in the end. But I was being cautious of the fact that my father was there. I didn't want to cause a scene that you don't want to be the bigger person, but it was really horrible. And I've only ever been to religious funerals. That's all I've ever attended. And my cousin passed last month and that was the first service. I, I don't even know if service is the right word. It was the most beautiful memorial and they passed very young. They were 25, um, which is incredibly tragic. And what was done was we went to a park, a, a local park where they played as a child. Uh, so there were fun, fond memories in that park. Um, their uncles, their uncle's ashes were also there. He also died young. Um, and their grandmother's house where they used to live and had a lot of fond memories as well, just across the street, basically. So it's a really beautiful place. And what we did was us immediate family members, so uh, the cousins and siblings, parents and uncles, we all planted native butterfly attracting grasses. And we had this beautiful rainbow map placed down sort of in the, in the area so we could see where it was. And we planted all around that. And then we had a, a small cage with butterflies, live butterflies in it. And attached to the top was a piece of string that went every, it went around the circle. Every single person that was attending was holding on to that same piece of string. And then it came all the way back. So it was just a big, it was a big circle. And we all stood there holding it and we, we did a little tug and the, the lid opened up and released the butterflies. So we were all a part of that. And it was just the most beautiful way to do it. A, a few words were said, and then we all got to, I actually suggested it because I was like, I would like a piece of this string to, um, to take home, um, to either place on my ancestor altar, make a little bracelet, something like that. And my cousin loved crocheting, so I thought I'll, I'll even buy a crochet hook. I'm usually a knitter, but I'll buy a crochet hook and I'll, I'll do a little crocheting with it. And my uncle was like, oh, I love that idea. Let's offer it to everyone. So everyone got a piece of this beautiful wool <laughs> to take home as a memento. And I saw people that had already done little plaits with it and wearing it around their neck or their wrist, tying it onto their clothes. And it was, you know, bright, happy colours. 
it was really really nice and then we went to a pub afterwards for for food and everything and obviously photos on which broke me but the memorial itself i found incredibly touching beautiful and just no no sermons no talk of heaven or hell no talk of anything it was just this is what they would have loved and that was that you know they loved nature they loved butterflies they loved um, things that were environmentally friendly so that's why that was the option so yeah it was it was really beautiful i wanted to share that because i know that you would be interested in that as well yeah, thank you thank you for sharing that it is really beautiful it's um in do i have to wear black one of the funerary rituals that i i share there involves putting everyone in a circle and they they have a piece of cord um and every person moves along the string tying a knot in it and they wind it back around until it makes its way back to the the nearest bereaved the immediate next of kin uh, it starts and ends with them so they can take that away um so i like that a lot actually yeah i think the the ritual around it was really beautiful everyone was involved yeah, it was, and also, even though we planted the plants, everybody was asked to find a pretty leaf on the ground or a little flower that they could then place almost like a mulch around those little grasses. So That's beautiful. it included everybody. It was really yeah. nice. Um, so, yeah, so that was that. But firstly, I just realised before, as I was talking, I forgot to do the thing that I'm doing this season. Oh. Which is <laughs> when, I, when I opened the episode, I wanted to pull a card for each guest, and we've just gone straight into talking because that's what we do pull a card what? for you yes but i will i will also i i mentioned this to you before the broadcast but i recently discovered at my ripe old age that i have type 1 diabetes um apparently and this is good for everyone to know you can develop latent onset autoimmune diabetes at any point in your life if your uh, system suffers an insult which Mine did after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, I lost access to a medication because it's a tetragenic drug. It can cause miscarriage and it would no longer be prescribed to me because I'm viably fertile. And after losing access to my medication, I developed latent onset autoimmune diabetes and my blood sugar has been low all day. So while you pull a card, I am going to test my blood sugar. <laughs> oh, it just makes me so angry for you that you're kind it's of... I think there's so many stories that are a part of these things that have happened and this is the least of them. There are so many people that have suffered such terrible things. And... Still, I was going to say, I, d I didn't know you could get type one diabetes or notice it later on, but then, you know, then you explained. <laughs> um, as as um, part of the experience I grew up in, I had a lot of food insecurity and spent a lot of time malnourished. And apparently if you have that kind of experience at a young age, it can actually defer um, insulin dependence and, and those kinds of things until much later in life, it can make it hard to see that in your body. Interesting. Perfect storm, perfect storm. But, I, but I've I found a very fun, cute meter. We'll do sponsored bites. No, I'm joking, it's not really good. <laughs> I love this tiny techie little meter. This is the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, I had blood to, burn, so. <laughs> my blood sugars when I was pregnant um, because I I said no to the glucose test, which a lot of people don't know you can say no to. I don't know. Do you guys do the glucose test over there? You do the glucose test. 
Um, you can say no. I did it anyway because diabetes is in my family. But oh, it's so horribly yucky. I did it the first time with my daughter. They actually made me do it two times. One at like 20 weeks and one at like 28 weeks or something because I have PCOS and they're like, that makes you more at risk. I was carrying twins, so there's a huge risk. Yeah. yeah. And then second time around, I was definitely more intuitive in terms of my pregnancy and what I felt. And I was already horrendous. Like I had horrendous, horrendous um, morning sickness and aversions that, uh, what is it called? Hyperomus gravidarum. Only for the first half of the pregnancy, but that's enough. Like you don't want that. Um, and I just knew, firstly, I would not be able to even do a single sip of that. And then so I researched like, okay, well, how didn't, how necessary is it for me and all of that. So I read a lot about it and then I decided to do my own testing at home because I was like, if I have it, it would show up on a finger prick test. I can do that a couple times a day for a couple weeks. Right. For anyone watching along on Patreon, important to alcohol swab your fingertips because you have any food remnants on your fingers it'll make the test inaccurate what? and you'll test your blood sugar and it will be hugely high but you had like residue from a snack on your nose. and uh, testing on the sides of your fingers hurts less so if you're drawing blood for ritual or for magical uses you want a clean lancing device alcohol swabs and you use the side of your finger you get more blood and it doesn't really hurt because you don't have a lot of nerve endings there I also did the side. I think my pharmacist told me that. And then um, it also doesn't hurt as much when you're then using your fingertips for all the things that we use them for. A little drop of blood. <laughs> I use this for ritual a lot. I like to joke that um, like a proper necromancer, my life is sustained by a series of daily blood rituals. <laughs> blood offerings are what keep me alive. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow, blood it's is very, low. very powerful when used in magic. Quite terribly low, so I'm going to eat a lifesaver candy, which they were invented for diabetics. I don't know if you knew that. That's why they're shaped like little lifesavers. Like you throw off a boat. Yeah. One of exactly three, three milligrams of sugar. So it's <laughs> fascinating. All right. So do you have a question for these cups? Hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Go Noisy it. candy. Um, my question would be, how are things going to go with the launch of the Bones Fall in a Spiral? Yes, and we have to talk about that. Now, I have chosen this deck specifically, and I know you know of it because I sent you a little note written on one of the postcards that came with this deck. Mm -hmm. But it is probably the only deck I have that I will forever rely on the guidebook for because it is a bit unusual. It's a bit out there. So, but I like that. And I think it fits with your vibe as well. So let's go. Now this is called the Mythologica Fenica Tarot. So I'll hold up the little box if you're watching along on YouTube or with Patreon. So, I want it terribly. I haven't been able to find it. It's oh, I've got um, – I should be able to send you a link to where I got it from. Uh, so it is – it takes its inspiration and wisdom from the Finnish national epic Kalevala, Finnish folklore, shamanism, and the collections of the Finnish Literary Society. 
it is really fascinating how they've done it. They've basically chosen Finnish folklore and myths. So I can't even describe it properly. And then associated it with the most likely tarot card. And then the book gives you a little rundown of a, what the tarot card would be traditionally and then how they've woven it in. It's really fascinating. So let's see this card and I do not speak Finnish and I am not aware of all the pronunciations. So this is Naki, Naki, N-A-K-K-I, but the A has the two little dots on top of it. I don't know how that makes the pronunciation difference, but it has, and I don't even know how to describe it, a frog-like creature playing a violin and he has a very creepy grin. And I'm going to bring him up. He's got the number seven at the bottom. It might be seven of cups. Let me have a look. It is, it comes with a literal book as the guidebook, like a novel. Um, isn't, isn't Naki the Danish for um, uh, a mixie? I have They're like a sprite. They're like a sprite. Maybe. Um, yeah, seven of cups is the relevant one. So let's go to page 109. 109 here we go so yes it would be akin to the seven of cups so the key words are prejudices uh, escapism lavish indulgences hyperactivity boredom saturation disgust masks pretension calculating there are a lot of interesting words there <laughs> sounds terribly negative <laughs> <laughs> let's see so naki was a creature that lived in almost every finnish body of water it stalked its prey in wells, on beaches, and at the brinks of rapids. It strived to trick people into water and then to drown them. Naki could assume any form when showing itself to humans. To men, it, it appeared as a, um, a woman who sat on a rock on the beach and combed her long black hair. The stories also gave the woman enormous breasts that she would throw over her shoulders to terrify people. <laughs> Makes me think in school we used to sing, do your boobs hang low? Do they wobble to and fro? Can you tie them in a knot? Can you tie them in a bow? <laughs> I also heard that. <laughs> um, Naki approached children in the form of a black dog or a horse that appeared among them on the beach. It tried to lure all of them to ride on its back and then sprinted into the water trying to drown them. To women, it could appear as a silk scarf floating on the waves or as a ring that peaked from the beach's sand. Sometimes it also appeared as a rock that tempted people to swim to it interesting um so it also, also almost used as a boogeyman to keep children from going near water alone lest it catch them naki was a talented violinist and could also teach this skill according to folklore one could seek this teacher out by going to a large rock in a rapid and playing there during some magical moment like the night of midsummer's day naki would insist its pupils to gird themselves into it with the same belt to prevent them from falling into the water it was imperative not to buckle the belt, though, or else the Naki pulled the player underwater after the lesson was over. Um, when the Naki began playing, the pupil had to keep up no matter what and not stop playing under any circumstances before the Naki did. And the song could only be played 10 times, any more than that, and the player would fall under his spell. So interesting. So what it refers to, because that's the folklore, right? That's the myth or the legend. Now the conclusion, and whilst I'm talking about this, the traditional meaning of the Seven of Cups, if we're looking at that, I often refer to this card as almost like a card of um, wishes or wishes coming true. 
Okay, so I have a really positive take on the seven of cups. What we would usually see in something like the Rider Waite Smith is seven cups up there filled with different things. One's filled with, you know, riches and gold and jewels. One's filled with a dragon, which is meant to mean, you know, fear, but can also be bravery. One is meant to be the tower, again, fears, things like that. Um, there is a veil, it's meant to be like Veronica's veil. I say it as a link to the spirit world, but there's a person sort of figure that we see just from behind that they're looking up like, hmm, what do I choose? So it's almost like you get to choose how your wish is fulfilled or how um, how you want it to be seen, if that makes sense, where you want to put your focus. Um, it's a, a chance for you to choose how you want that to manifest into reality, right? That's how I would take the traditional seven of cups. So this one and the deck creator has says, that the Naki refers to problems of emotional level or misunderstandings, tells of difficulties to trust others and the world of learned fears and prejudices that may have been picked up perhaps during childhood that can rise up in ever new forms to haunt you. Um, let me do it because it's a big paragraph. I'm just going to scan it over. Um, sometimes the problem is that the person with these kinds of fears doesn't realize that the terrifying strange thing may not be there. So this could be even a a card of trusting things to go the way they're supposed to go, if that makes sense. Even though past experiences may have led you to believe it might not go well, if that makes sense. Uh, Naki has one weakness though. It loses its power when it's recognizes when it's recognized and its name is said. I like that. When you realize the fear and you say it out loud, it loses its power. Very true. That's really cool. Oh, I wonder if Storm Fairy Wolf mentioned, I don't remember potentially in that book because he wrote on uh, magical names. It's really cool. Uh, take a good look at the proposals you're offered and the stories you're told. Trust in your own intuition and do not surrender to be led by others. People may talk whatever pops into their head and it's not always worthwhile to listen. Rumours and gossip make, may make it difficult to form an objective opinion of your situation. Something that's bad isn't often that bad as people have let you believe. If someone would try to scare you to believe otherwise, it doesn't mean you're going to have the same experience. So it warns you from taking a negative stance towards life. And let's see, and don't turn down even the most innocent of offers. So in the very end, basically understanding that your greatest weaknesses will also transform into your greatest strengths. So goods and bads. Yeah. I always looked at the seven of cups as um, opportunities, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like a variety of opportunities and opportunities is a neutral word. They could be bad opportunities. They could be mm -hmm. good ones. I think that is in terms of my question, a challenging thing when it comes to advertising a book that's coming out. Advertising is a terrible word, but like letting people know about it because there are lots of opportunities and I, for one, always question which are the best ones because I worry that I might accidentally align myself with someone terrible and horrible like agree to go on a podcast and later learn that that person is transphobic or some other kind of horrible and then you feel awful forever because you've hitched your wagon to the wrong kind of person as as we say here in the south <laughs> interesting I know I know what you mean I think that's a unfortunately it's a fear based in reality because we do see that happen in the community 
Um, but yeah, even just acknowledging it and saying it out loud can probably take some of that fear away. Remembering that you can trust yourself and your intuition. And if you're not sure about something, maybe that's a sign as well. Or if you're not sure about someone. I think too, that's about extending trust to people like your listeners, because Mm -hmm. it's saying this scares me and I'm going to do my very best, but if I mess up, I'm going to trust you to know that I, I tried. Mm -hmm. I think as well in, in that explanation, which I just, I do really love with this tarot deck, the way it weaves the traditional meaning, which you can see sort of underneath the Mm -hmm. the logical interpretation as well. It's really intriguing. Uh, And I'm sure you can tell by that read through that this is why I can never get rid of this book and pretty much can't, unless I get this card a million times and then I can maybe remember the finished folklore, but there's 78 cards in the deck. So I think it's really fascinating the way they've brought it together. But I did almost think as well, you can't control how your book will be received and that's okay. Very true. It won't be for everyone. Exactly. And the people that it is for, I think they're going to really need it. I also almost saw you as the teacher, like they have to, you know, do certain things because it's, you're teaching on necromancy in the book. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, indeed. So obviously that's a topic that some would say is taboo and potentially maybe you're like the violinist and you're going to teach them um, and they're going to keep up if they're going to go into that area. Like people might sense a little bit of danger in coming to it. Not that there is as much, I'm sure there is, but you know what I mean? That that's an interesting comment because you, you see the Naki as this teacher, but, you know, it seems that the folklore is used to frighten children away from something dangerous. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily saying the Naki themselves are dangerous at all. Something we perceive as dangerous, but that can teach. Mm-hmm. There are a few folklore um, examples of water spirits that can harm you that were used to keep children away from water so that they would be water safe right right Mm -hmm. which is interesting that that has developed um with oral history and that sort of thing but yes i do i do almost see that that teacher like he's got this this knowledge to share um but it's not for everyone it's just for the few that are ready to go with it right so with your new book the bones fall in a spiral Can you tell us what people can expect with this book? Oh my gosh. So first, the elephant in the room. I'll get that out of the way. Um, Obviously, I'm with a new publisher now. I'm happy to have joined the Crossed Crow family. Some synchronicity there with crows and, and myself. There were a lot of delays and issues with publishing the book originally, which of course is out of an author's hands if there are a lot of delays. And um, ultimately I uh, decided to part ways with Llewellyn so that I could get this book in your hands in the way I envisioned it. So I, I hope everybody has been patient with me and I, I'm grateful for those who have. But I wanted to write a book about the kind of magic that I love that we don't have. There are modern books on necromancy, not very many, very few, Um, but by and large, they're not well-cited. If they have a bibliography at all, it's very sparse. Um, I've yet to find one that didn't have an incredible amount of sort of gender binary stuff in there. And 
really problematic ideas about the dead and, and how we should interact with them. And I've been really disappointed for a long time because I would talk about those fears that we have. It's like, I imagine in my mind that when people hear that that's my magic, they think of those books <laughs> and think, oh, Mortellus thinks those things, which is very untrue. But the real issue way up with all that other stuff is that none of those books are truly practice-based. None of those books say, this is how you can incorporate this into your days, your hours, your life, and, and let it be a part of who you are. And I wanted to do that for people. So it's a book in which you find, you know, history and ethical foundation, where this comes from, why we have the stereotypes about it that we do, where did those come from? You know, what are they? Let's break them apart and really understand them. And I talk a bit about how to build that practice and, and what sort of the basic instruments and tools are, you know, what it looks like to build an altar for death magic, what a circle is like compared to any other. And yes, I'm using words like circle. Um, I, I joke in the introduction that I am a Wiccan. It is not a Wiccan book, but there's that kind of feeling here and there because ultimately the kind of necromancy I practice is Greek necromancy and it is European in flavor. Um, and the foundational basis for Wicca is also European high magic. So you see a lot of circles used in necromancy. So keep that in mind when you're reading it, that it's not it's not a, a wicca bath over the top of it, that that's actually pretty common for that, that kind of magic. So there's, there's all that in the first half of the book. And the second half of the book is a full set of rituals from a circle casting to consecrations to all those basic things. And then there's a huge spell book sorted by categories. So you have tons and tons and tons of spells and practices that I use in my own life. So that you can take out into yours and a bit of silliness for everyone, but there's even a full set of wheel of the year rituals um, because I really wanted to take a look at, you know, where does death fit at, at Christmas? Because death happens every day. You know, what does death feel like in the middle of summer? And what does death feel like in the spring when we're planting gardens? You know, we, we don't only have people die at Halloween or Samhain when it's, conveniently spooky right so how do we pull that practice into the cycles of the year and the wheel of the year made a really good foil for that it was a good challenge for me to sort of take that and break it down into a different kind of magic is that seasonal based or is it to do with that particular sabbat as well if that makes sense i'm just wondering it's, is it easily flippable so they're all flipped. When I was writing it, I thought of you. So I gave variants for the Northern and Western Hemisphere. Yay! <laughs> Northern and Southern. There's their split and I have the inverted dates for everything. <laughs> I wasn't going to leave you out, Hannah. Oh, that makes my heart sing. <laughs> That's very rare and it's very thoughtful and I love that. <laughs> you, thank you. I wouldn't and expect anything less from you though. Everything you do is very well thought out. I try I try my best and I fail often we're all human we all mess up but I do my very best and that's all we can expect I suppose so with necromancy itself mm -hmm. in my I guess what I do in terms of divination 
stuff. Mancy as a, as a uh, suffix basically means divination and necro would mean dead. Mm-hmm. Death divination. But I know as a magical practice, it is, it is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a way of describing what it would be and how it's different from other forms of magic? Necromancy is used in a lot of ways. Today, people use it to mean something pretty specific. They specifically mean divination by use of ghosts, or perhaps they mean bodies, but mostly people don't mean that. Um, And most of those ideas are centered around fiction, video games, or tabletop RPGs. But I use the word in a way, perhaps those dubiously ancient Greeks might have I'm not going to give you a span of years. That would feel silly. So we're just going to use ancient colloquially. But um, really it just meant any magic that involved death or the dead. Now we can decide what death or the dead means. We can mean ghosts. We can mean bodies. We can mean funerary work, etc. On the other hand, we can look at what is magic what things constitute magic? Is it rituals? Is it spells? Is it how we live and what we think and what we do? I think it's all those things. Everything we do every day involves the dead, whether we like it or not, whether we think about it or not, everything we eat is dead. You're sitting in a house built of wood that is most certainly not alive. We power our vehicles with the remains of dinosaurs. Like, death is constantly around us so necromancy for me is really acknowledging that giving it the weight it deserves I don't ignore the fact that the fossilized remains of creatures so ancient I can't even imagine what it would be like to live with them power my modern car I don't ignore that I remember that every time I fill up my gas tank Mm. I pause to thank that creature for what their life means to all of us. You know, just pausing to think about that wood that used to be a tree every time I open a door, those little things. There were, there's a term necrophagy, which means to ritually consume the flesh of the dead. And I remember that every time I eat a ham sandwich. I was vegetarian for a long time and I actually choose today to consume meat as part of my diet as a ritual act of necrophagy so i i think that necromancy is really about living consciously and with intent and being really purposeful in recognizing where things come from and where they go Mm, it's really honoring honoring that that aspect in that cycle is what it sounds it's letting it be part of your magic it's letting grief be part of your magic and mourning and funerals and ancestors and mediumship and every little thing. Yeah, it's interesting to note that things people may not term as necromancy, such as having an ancestor altar, could be necromancy. They most certainly are. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. If you consider it a magical practice and it involves the dead, it's definitely necromancy. Wonderful. Well, then I'm I'm changing my view on all of that as well. Um, my daughter and I yesterday went to my grandmother's grave because it was my grandmother's birthday, and we took her favorite drink, and we 
poured it out in her glasses that I was that were passed on to me. And my daughter was like, this is really gross because <laughs> it was she liked bitter lemon cordial. It's not sweet. It's bitter, bitter lemon. I love it. it makes me think of my my grandparents. But my daughter was like, why are we doing this? Mom? I was like, just you don't have to drink it if you don't want it. We'll just pour it out together. And we poured them for them and we spoke to them and caught them up. So because she's buried next to my grandfather, caught them up on, um, you know, my son's now sleeping through the night most nights and this is also happening and she started school and all of that and you know poured their drinks out at the end and I said afterwards to my husband I was like whilst that wasn't a magical thing like we didn't we weren't doing any spell work or anything like that we were honoring her on her birthday we took her flowers which my daughter picked and she picked a white lily and that was a staple in my nana's house for white lilies and she didn't realize that she goes, oh, I think she'd like this one. I was like, I think you're right. <laughs> she knew. But I think even just seeing her, oh, knowing that she's there, seeing me move through my grief and working through my grief and honouring and not shying away from the fact that they are you know, buried beneath the ground here. And she said to me, she goes, oh, why is no one else here? I said, well, people don't usually visit graveyards too frequently. She goes, oh, but there's so many other graves here. Why is no one else? Surely it's someone else's birthday today. I thought, isn't that beautiful that she just presumes everybody does this and honours their, their ancestors in this manner? And I think it's a, even if she doesn't want to do something like this when she's older. It's me re- May I reframe? Yeah, go for it. In classic necromantic rituals from the medieval grimoire, all the way backward. Some common acts that you see in necromantic rituals are walking to a grave, consuming foods that the deceased enjoyed, leaving those foods for them, speaking to them, sitting on their graves. Everything you did is classically a necromantic ritual. Am I a necromancer? I think you are. (laughs) You want to know a secret? I think we all are. It's really fascinating. I love that because I've, I've just found this, the, the aspect of death, especially being a witch and changing my views from what I was grown up to be fearful of or weirdly hopeful of um, the afterlife, but still very terrified because who knows, you could end up in hell. Now it's such a different feeling. I'm not afraid and I have this, this yeah, respect, honour, and I acknowledge it and move through it. It just feels a much healthier way to approach death. I um, I was speaking earlier about the seasonal rituals here in the United States. We're coming up on springtime. We are about to be planting flowers and gardens and it's starting to buzz with life. On my way out to the office today, a honeybee landed on me and I was like, oh, it's that time of year. It's great. And I have a ritual that's meant for this time of year and it can be used for Beltane or it can be used anytime you're planting. Um, And the idea is that what you're planting, you should caretake and love. But if it doesn't live, love it just the same. And when a plant dies or fails, we turn them into the earth, we throw them out, we plant something new, we forget about them. But I encourage people to caretake the, the plant that didn't make it just as tenderly as one that did because that's our job to upkeep the living and the dead with equal tenderness and I wrote an invocation for planting 
if you'd like, I'll share it with you and your listeners. Absolutely. To the unquiet earth, these seeds committed and out of darkness born. In this grave, I plant a garden that life rise in the morn. Beauty in life like summer flowers, never what it seems. For gardens that lie fallow, flourish in fields of dreams. Beautiful. My children believe that when flowers wither up and die, that they go live in Persephone's garden and that the white spookies, this is what she calls ghosts, my, one of my twins, take care of them. Mm. And that they keep the bulbs and roots in the earth and take care of their little graves until they can grow again. They think about that a lot. Mm. So if you have a house plant that just doesn't make it, imagine it's in the underworld bringing beauty to your loved ones. Mm. That's lovely. I like that. I have a couple of plants. This room that I work in and study in and write in and record my podcasts in and everything it's my sacred space my magical space it is it gets very 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 hot but then it also when I'm in here I usually have the air conditioner on so it also gets very very cold and I found it's quite a difficult place to figure out which plants enjoy it so we have lost a few darlings and there's one actually sitting just outside on the table um, that I'm going to attempt to plant into the ground outside because I think it might enjoy that a bit better than this room um, and I've only just recently discovered plants that love it we've got this one and what is it called I cannot recall but it looks like that if you're looking on the, <laughs> on the thing and it just it has so much fun here it loves it it's thriving and I'm really happy that I've found that. And I've got, I've just bought another one with a different variegated leaf to place in here. So I have some beautiful greenery, but I, yeah, usually I just put the dead plants in my compost unless they're diseased. Um, they go in the pit. But I do like the idea of still honoring their cycle and imagining that they're on the other side. Composting is still necromancy. Yes. You take life, something that has died, you're turning it into the earth. You are returning it back to something fertile and useful and growing something new from it. Mm -hmm. People think that necromancy is always about death, but it's quite the opposite. Necromancy always operates on a series of reversals. Mm. Even if you think about the stereotypes of necromancy, you're thinking of someone raising the dead, right? You have to turn back time to do that. Mm. You're turning things opposite. So whereas magic that's about life is always about turning the clock forward clockwise walking around the altar toward your inevitable mortality necromancy asks you to reverse that view to turn around and look at your life look mm -hmm. at what you have had and appreciate what there is of it still mm -hmm. to understand that there might not be a tomorrow but you have lived many yesterdays do you think necromancy in general draws more on ceremonial and high magic? That's usually what I have thought of in my mind when I think of it. Or does it incorporate a lot of folk magic or what some people term low magic as well? That's a question that's difficult to answer. And I'll give it a try. Bearing in mind how I use the word necromancy. Yeah. I do tend to rely on Greek necromancy. Now you have to understand that if we're using the word the way I use it, 
there are a ton of folk practices and indigenous practices that are also necromancy. But those are not my practices, so I do not use them or teach them. So they might have a different answer. We'll start there. On the other end of the spectrum, if we go back to ye old Europe, <laughs> when you think about that high magic occult sort of image of necromancy, it's because a lot of the writings we have were written in the 15th century by popes. Mm -hmm. And some of the more modern texts we have were written in the 1800s by individuals like Elsus Levy, who were also high magic occultists and also very Catholic. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But if you push further, much further past Catholics, it starts to look more and more like folk practices again. So if you look at what we have left remaining of um, an idea of early Greek rituals, you have more of a picture of what those kinds of rituals would look like. But a necromancer in those time periods would have been not just a magician or a sorcerer or a witch. It would also have been a clergy person, the person who prepared your dead for burial, person that helped you with those very mundane rites. Mm -hmm. So it's quite an all-purpose term to mean a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also thinking as well now, I've got at my feet, I literally have the Book of the Dead, um, which is not actually the word for it. It is the coffin book, the coffin texts. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a couple couple different words for it. I prefer the actual name used by ancient Kemets. It's the Book of Going Forth by Day. Mm. Mm. So whereas it's discoverers couched it in death. Yes. It, death rituals it's the book of the dead these are coffin texts the people who used them calls them called them the book of going forth by day mm. much more positive yes lovely. absolutely going forth by day and i'm learning so much about ancient egyptian or comedic death practices and rituals and ceremony because my supernatural fiction that i'm writing is based in Kemet in 2000 bc and so I have to, I have to learn about it. And it's fascinating. It is so fascinating. One of, you. One of, my, one of my favorite bits is that <clears throat> families every year would cross the Nile by boat and go into the Valley of the Dead and clean all the tombs, spruce everything up, but they took feasts and had huge picnics there. It was called the Beautiful Feast of the Valley and mm -hmm. everyone partook. But if you participated in the Beautiful Feast of the Valley, if there was a tomb where that person didn't have any living loved ones everyone took care of them mm. it'd be like if you visited a cemetery and you knew a person buried there had no one to upkeep their grave you would clean it anyway you would leave them an offering yeah because it's, it's so important to be remembered it sounds like uh very similar to dia de los muertos as well mm -hmm. David. Yeah. and it's so interesting seeing so many cultures and historical accounts of that happening right and people spending the day where their dead are and I think it's it's a really beautiful way to honor honor them and not be afraid of it you know not be afraid of oh a graveyard or a tomb and spooky ghosts and all of that like I've yeah I've never had that feeling around like I used to when I was a kid but when I go there now and I sit on the grave I don't get that vibe that I would have presumed I would by going to sitting in a grave. You know, there's um, 
there's a bit of my book I had up on the screen because I was going to ask you later if I could end the podcast by reading it to your folks. But um, you you made me think of it heavily because I, I quipped to my spouse one day that I don't understand why people are afraid of cemeteries, but they love the night. They love the night sky. But the night sky is also a cemetery. Mm. We know scientifically that those stars burned out a long time ago. We're just seeing ghosts but we don't find that frightening we find it beautiful so why can't we look at our own dead in the same way Mm. it's a real i think what you do and what you are doing for a lot of people is helping them almost to rewire their their view on death i hope that would that would make me happy (laughs) Any person that walks away from listening to me talk going, yeah, actually, you know, (laughs) I think it's, I think it's beautiful. And it's something not many people are doing. People shy away from the topic of death. It's it's an, it's an odd thing that we're either sort of afraid of death or we have a group of people who they love death, but they, they like the sort of spooky stereotypes, which that's not helping the dead either. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Also side note, when when you sent me, you sent me a few of uh, your beautiful, beautiful candles mm-hmm. and they have a wick that is made from the wood of a coffin. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I posted up and said, yeah, this amazing candle, blah, 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 blah. And I remember a comment, it just stood out so vividly. And they said, you know, you're going to invite horrible things into your <laughs> home by having that there. And Firstly, I didn't want to tell them about the corpse water you sent me. <laughs> How am I going to feel about that? <laughs> let me That's let me offer up a people, you know. Let me offer up a thought. <laughs> if you went to the store and you bought a bottle of vodka, no one would stop you in the store and say you're going to invite terrible people into your house with that, because no one gets to come over and drink your vodka unless you let them. Mm-hmm. You get to choose what kind of people come over and enjoy your drinks. I really thought you were going to go down the path <laughs> of dead potatoes. <laughs> to get the vodka. Dead potatoes, yes. <laughs> worth remembering your vodka is also dead potatoes. Also worth remembering that the chemical composition of a potato that is decaying is quite similar to the chemical composition of a human being that's decaying. And sometimes when people call their their local 911 or emergency services and say, I think there might be a, a deceased person in this home or in this place. And they go to check, they'll find a bag of rotting potatoes because they smell the same. <laughs> That's fascinating. It's yeah. quite a terrible smell if you've ever had a potato go bad. Mm-hmm. It's very much what a human decaying corpse smells like. Mm-hmm. Yes, lovely. <laughs> I've smelled it. <laughs> I've smelt it once before the smell of death and it was very pungent. But back to candles. And it's your space. I assume you have magically warded it and you caretake it in the way that matters to you. Mm-hmm. There's, it's the same as locking your front door. Nobody's walking in to take your vodka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved that candle. What is the distinction, right? And but I love but what I think- it. Um, I have to mention it because... 
my husband and I, when we opened up, we were like, oh, what is that smell? I love that smell. That is amazing. And we couldn't place it. We're just sitting there going, and we're usually pretty good. We're like, what is that? It's so familiar, but I can't place it. I had to message you and be like, I have to know what scent this is. And it's the scent of burnt matches. When I burn candles in my home for any purpose, ritual or birthday candles or whatever I've used a match for, I throw them into a jar, whole mason jar, and I break off the old match heads when I have quite a lot of them and I infuse my wax with them. Fascinating. It's, it's so creative. It is so creative. It, I think it's brilliant. It was wonderful. I love that. I did want to say, though, to the, to the person who, who made the comment about inviting, I, I say this a lot. It's one of my favorite analogies, but imagine a very busy place. Usually when I'm talking to Americans, I will say it's something like a Walmart, but it's just like a department store, something big and noisy and crowded and, you know, filled with people. Yes. The odds of someone in that building with you being truly evil are so minute as to be almost incalculable. There's actual math for that. If you want to say X number of people in space, in a space, what are the, the odds of one of them being a serial killer or something? And it's so infinitesimal that you almost can't count it. But also the odds of someone in that space being truly benevolent are similarly infinitesimal. That's because human beings are mostly morally gray we make the choices that we need to in the moment and we do our best and we're not perfect and we're a little bit selfish and greedy and crummy sometimes we all have bad days but we're all pretty ordinary you might not like some of the people in that department store and some of them might be people you don't want to talk to but you're probably not frightened that they might murder you in the checkout line right it's the same with the dead they are still human beings. And the odds of you encountering a spirit that is truly dangerous and evil are so small, mm. so vastly small that when someone contacts me and says, I have an evil ghost in my house or something, I always start a conversation that goes something like, are you sure though? Are you sure that they are malevolent? Mm. Because maybe there's a communication breakdown here. Maybe you don't understand each other. Let's work it out. Mm -hmm. And almost every time we find the answer and it's somewhere left of, of where we started. You helped me with that when I contacted you and said something is happening and I, I know what it looks like and I don't know what it is. And actually it makes me think of the, the Naki from that card earlier because what I was experiencing was almost something trying to scare me so I wouldn't keep going where I was going because it could be dangerous. And so it was lots a way of protection. Lots of things are scary if we don't know what they are or we aren't familiar with them. I'll tell you a story about my grandmother. When I was very small, maybe five, six years old, um, I happened to be in my grandmother's kitchen and my grandmother, you have to imagine, is like 75, 76 years old. And, you know thin and frail little person wearing one of those cotton short sleeve t-shirt dresses with the big pockets in the front, apron on, compression stockings rolled just over the knee with yet other socks on top and those grandma shoes that I assume 
I assume when you turn a certain age, you just automatically get a secret catalog where you can buy these shoes because I've never seen them anywhere. They don't exist. <laughs> so she's at the sink washing dishes. And suddenly she startles. She is visibly frightened. She runs to the phone. I'm very, I'm small. I have no idea what's happening. She runs to the phone, very obviously calls one of my uncles who lives next door at the time and is um, manic about this horrifying monster she has seen in the backyard. And she calls it a giant chicken. And she's like, it has teeth and it's, it's a monster. It's huge. She's very frightened. Now, my grandmother, being the person that she is, puts down the phone, walks into the other room, picks up a garden hoe, puts on a straw hat, tells me to stay inside no matter what. And she goes out to wage war with what she believes to be a monster. I pull a chair to the window so I can see what's happening. And what I see is my tiny elderly grandmother with a garden hoe and a straw hat chasing an emu. My uncle, unbeknownst to everyone, had purchased five of them, believing he was going to become a farmer of emu. There was a bit of a trend for, for emu eggs or something. <laughs> but one had gotten out, and it's this humongous bird. They're quite frightening if you've ever seen one. They're very large. They're frightening in, just in general, yes. But in all of her rural North Carolina life, she'd never seen one. She didn't know what this was. It was a horror to her. Yeah. She was like, from the dinosaur age. Right. And she chased this thing down. She won. They're <laughs> fast, though. They're very fast. Oh, my grandmother was having none of that. She had me to protect, of course, and other grandchildren and people in the world. For all she knew, it was a giant chicken outbreak, and we were very in trouble. <laughs> but put that in terms of your magic. Something you've never seen before. Of course, it's frightening, and it's, it's, it might be a horror. Because you do not have a frame of reference. Mm. There's no context. But if we all jump to the assumption that something unfamiliar and new is evil and scary and bad, well, we can see how that worked out for humanity and it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So maybe don't do that with your magic either. Yeah. Take, take the time to get to know these beings and what they have to offer. Maybe for a moment, check that fear and those stereotypes and assumptions to stop. Mm. take a breath be still see what you sense and feel and maybe they're angry and maybe they're bigger than you maybe they look a little scary but like a little halloween cartoon my children love says monsters might be scary looking but they aren't always mean mm. yeah i've i can definitely tell you i've had no issues with any of your products, of any things. I mean, as you said, I've got protections up. I've got warts up. I feel into it beforehand. If I was like, mm, don't know about this, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have used it. I also even trust you. Even if you didn't have those protections, mm. you'd be okay. Yeah. And it's, I know that whatever you do, if you're getting a piece of wood from a coffin, you would have asked permission, right? Now, if somebody was selling graveyard dirt online and I didn't know them and they didn't say anything about their ethical practices I would be very cautious of that um a could just be dirt but b I think graveyard dirt needs to be collected in a certain way 
You have to understand that when the graveyard dirt I sell hasn't even been collected in that certain way. Mm. Me being a mortician, I'm often pulling them out of the bottom of a grave. I help dig. Yeah. And there's that service there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe it's not the practice you're you're used to hearing, but it's it's tangible and real for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think knowing if you're going to be buying stuff like um, the things that you sell, knowing that the person who sells them is ethical and trustworthy is important. Um, I agree. But yeah, I I do also think there is a lot of fear around, uh, and I I had it too, especially coming from the church. You know, demons were at every corner, under the bed, everywhere, right? That can be hard to get away from those fears Mm -hmm. and to realise, and I think as well it takes time and those little baby steps that you do something and go, oh, actually I'm fine, nothing bad happened do something else again a little bit scarier oh nothing bad happened and then you relearn you teach yourself that actually the thing that I thought was going to happen didn't happen and whenever I have because I have had supernatural experiences that were scary but I understand more they've all taught me something I have a if anyone does human design I have a three in my I'm a one three so I experience stuff and that helps me learn stuff so I can share that knowledge with other people that's why I have such weird things happen but Nothing has happened when, even when it's been a little bit scary, a little bit out there, it's not what I thought would happen when I was younger, or if I ever thought about ghosts and hauntings and paranormal stuff, like it's never that bad. I've never had, you know, physical harm or, uh, the worst might be a bad dream and a headache. That's kind of where it sits at. Right. Um, there was one time with, uh, what's it called sleep paralysis and, I still don't really know a lot about that one. I did end up seeing um, a practitioner to help me through that one. That was way before I knew anything about what I'm doing here. So I wonder how I see it in a lens now, you know? I don't want to um, give away bits of our our private conversation about the entity you encountered in another circumstance, but um, night hags like are commonly given responsibility for sleep paralysis Mm. are similar guardians. Mm. Well, this one, when I went, because um, I've told the story on the podcast before, this happened when I was in Louisiana, uh, staying in a trailer on a goat dairy farm in the middle of rural Louisiana, surrounded by cornfields. Cornfields are really spooky. And I don't know if that's because I've seen Signs, the movie. Oh, and there's there's so many like creepy movies about cornfields too. Yeah. It's just in yeah. there. <laughs> something, something about the way they're dry and they rustle in the night. <laughs> hide in them and you never know what's in there yeah crop circles all that stuff and yes signs I think spooked me from that but uh the the experience that I had there which was not the usual chest pressure which people get with uh paralysis sleep paralysis it was like a feeling on my wrists holding me down and I could lift my head up and my chest up but I couldn't move my wrists up and that was my first ever supernatural paranormal experience and of course I slipped right back into the church started praying and when I ended up going back to New Orleans because my friend that I was staying with she got her friend who was a witch my first witch I ever met he did um he used a pendulum and he said there's definitely something here but it's you not the place Uh, it's come with you and he put some protections in place and I didn't have anything happen inside the trailer after that so I felt safe which was good because my prayers did not help, unfortunately. 
and then went to New Orleans, saw a voodoo practitioner and was just talking about the experience. And they actually helped me through it. And I'd done all these, the graveyard tours throughout New Orleans the day before I went to that farm. And he taught me some proper graveyard etiquette and said that basically something had gone, oh, what's that over there? And sort of hitched a little bit of a ride. Um, whether it was negative or meant me harm, I don't, you know, at the time I thought so. Again, now I think I have a different lens that I would see that whole interaction through. And I class that as a bit of my psychic wake up to this world and that it's real and that it's almost pushed me onto this path. And I don't think I'd be where I am now if I didn't have that experience. So I'm grateful for it. It was very terrifying at the time. But again, I was also looking at it as in this is a demon sent from hell to get me. <laughs> That's sort of like the, the Naki being a teacher, but also being frightening. Mm-hmm. But I think this might be useful for your listeners, um, as I have previously talked to you about um, in lore, the gates of Tartarus, which in Greek mythology is a place in Hades where the worst of the dead, that that infinitesimal number of really bad individuals are kept, is adjacent the gate of dreams. So in sleep, you are closest to that part of the underworld. Mm. And there are creatures in lore that guard that boundary so that people who are dreaming don't wander into that particularly unpleasant part of Hades. Uh, One of the creatures that occupies that space is where we get the word nightmare from, noctmires. And night hags, like, will sit on your chest or similar. And I've said this to you before. I think you do have a natural affinity for ethereal travel. You probably travel in your dreams. Yeah. So these creatures are likely attracted to you because they're like, don't take this path though. This is this there, you could go this way and you'd probably be all right, but it's not the most fun tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe don't go that way. Yeah. Well, when I had that experience, cause I remember describing to you when I psychically did like almost like a psychic body scan, mm-hmm. I saw these things almost attached to the back of my neck and I was getting pretty bad migraines and I know my migraines are a lot of the time based in the fact that I am quite sensitive and to a lot of things like normal stimuli in an everyday environment um sounds all of that smells but then also psychically I've noticed that Mm -hmm. if I'm not shielded if I'm not grounded um it can trigger headaches and migraines for me and I was getting those and some pretty rotten nightmares but the thing that tricked me into being like a hmm something else is up here is that after I slept in that bed, cause it was the spare bed for whatever reason, I'd slept in that bed, had this nightmare, woken up with migraine going, oh, okay. And then my husband went and slept in that bed and he had a nightmare. And I was like, huh, huh. Okay. So I think when I was there and as we chatted, cause the first thing you were saying was when you fall asleep, how does, you know, do you feel like this or like this? And I often feel like I'm literally falling like down. And when I've done any form of like, um, out of body experiences, that sort of thing. Uh, it feels like a spinning backwards and you're like, Hmm, okay. I think I know what's so, happening. <laughs> so for those listening, astral travel is very centered in the mind. So it's very up and out, imagining yourself like a balloon floating out of your body, ethereal travel, traveling in the underworld, which I really don't hear people talk about that. I don't really see it in writing, but I do, I myself, personal gnosis, etc perceive it as a very different and distinct kind of travel where you're traveling in the underworld um i i kind of quipped that it feels like falling through your own ass 
just you're going down or backwards through your body, but it is a falling sensation. Mm. I I don't enjoy astral travel. And I think it's my connection to the underworld. I just, I feel like a balloon no one's holding on to. Like I could just get lost forever. Um, The air feels high and thin. And I just, I don't like that sensation. But I think people's energy is keyed to different things. And and I really do think you have that kind of Mm. ethereal underworld energy. Yeah. Um, I would be curious what your experiences with astral travel are, if it's if it's a comfortable experience for you. It depends, I think, the answer would be. It's not – when I'm in – I've been in a circle with one of my friends, uh, Dr. Danielle Arabina. Uh, she's an Indigenous woman. Her circles, I feel, really safe energetically. Um, she anchors anchors us with a drum and – I find when I travel or journey with her that way, I feel safe and grounded and the experiences are really intriguing. So you have a tether. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm also currently doing some sound healing work with um, Todd Sergot and that's distance as well. But again, I've mentioned to him before by having either him there holding that space and doing, um, he'll often use a drum or there's other instruments as well. I've said to him, I feel tethered and it, it feels like, ah, I can go and do these things. When I do it myself, if I am trying to communicate with my guides, deities, ancestors, all three I do in a different way, but generally deities, um, I I communicate through my black mirror and it it feels very different. It doesn't feel like underworld stuff and doesn't feel like astral travel feels different. It's like a whole different plane. I don't know if that makes sense. So you're using liminal space. Uh-huh. So liminal space is sort of adjacent. So I like having uh, sort of parameters for what I'm doing, right? And I like to understand where I'm going, what I'm experiencing. And we don't always get that luxury as magical practitioners. Um, we have to intuit and hold space for something we can't understand. But that's not my flavor of neurodivergence. So I went digging through every possible resource I could find, just book after book, trying to find little references to other spaces, realms like fairy, the underworld, liminal space, the dreaming, et cetera, and finding references for where they touch so that I could build a map. Mm-hmm. which I did. And this is not a final illustration, but it might it might help your, your listeners and viewers on Patreon. So here in the central area, you see the material plane. That's where we are. Mm-hmm. And that line across the bottom is the zero point field. Everything under that is that beneath when you do that kind of ethereal travel. Way up here is the astral plane holding all of these very mind-centered places, the realms of deity, the collective unconscious, etc. Here in the bottom, you have the kingdom of the dead, the underworld, but you have the bottom end of the dreaming and liminal spaces. So those are kind of beneath. They touch both spaces. So operating through the dreaming and the liminal space, you can sort of touch those lower places and those higher places. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're doing with your mirror. When you sort of move in those kinds of spaces what you're doing is kind of using trying to interact with this illustration it's giving me a hard time 
electronic problems. Um, liminal spaces, in my opinion, are holy. You have places like bridges, doorways, cemeteries, and so on. These spaces that are in between, neither here nor there. You see in the Scandin Scandinavian folklore, uh, uh, Vikings, the ancient Viking Norselands, make up silly words that we all know what we're talking about. Um, it was actually pretty common to build a door frame to place around the dead when they were when they were buried or burned. Um, the door is a really interesting kind of liminal space because it is something that establishes an in and an out. It is neither here nor there, and it creates a very specific kind of barrier. I use them a lot in my magic, but just simply standing in a doorway in the threshold to do certain kinds of magic or try sitting on the floor in the doorway, just like cross-legged if your body will allow it, um, and use that liminal space when you're meditating, that it's actually very helpful. Wow. I love that tip. I'm really fascinated because when I was telling you, I, I used the black mirror and I usually only do it on a dark moon and it's not every dark moon. It is just when I feel it's, it's a very sacred act for me. Notably, the dark moon itself is a liminal space. Yeah. Yes. And it also helps with a black mirror. You don't want any light reflecting in, like you need it to be dark. So I use my dark black mirror and it allows me, I guess, gazing into it allows me to go somewhere else for a little bit. And when I do communicate with my deities, it is, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I see like this, it feels like I'm in outer space because it is, everything is black and just, there's nothing like it's a space of nothing and a doorway opens and they step out and I'm on the other side of a bridge and I have to cross the bridge to get to them. That is how I see it. You're absolutely using liminal space as a way to get between. I think I'll hypothesize wildly, but I think you're quite like me where underworld travel ethereal travel is actually what comes natural to you mm. so you might experiment with that a bit everything below the zero point field mm -hmm. and, and i didn't establish with this sort of triangular area that's the veil the veil touches all of these places except the astral plane mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's when we talk about sometimes and of the year and liminal times when the veil is thinner mm. Mm -hmm. touch those places a little bit easier and the dreaming as well is that referencing literally our dream space when we are dreaming yes and that space touches closely to the collective unconscious so if you're familiar with that concept mm -hmm. and those spaces touch the astral plane because again we're very high up in thought this is very mm -hmm. thought form based and those spaces connect to the realms of deity but i use that pretty loosely it's a lot of deities are there there's also a ton of deities in the underworld, mm. but they're very different deities and they need a different approach. So, mm -hmm. but between those realms of deity and those realms of the underworld, you have liminal space. Yeah. So whatever, what I like to teach is that whatever space is most comfortable for you to get to, if you do well in liminal space, use that, but you can move from there to this place or that place. Mm -hmm. That way, you know what you're, adjacent capabilities are well when i'm when i try and connect with my guides when i connect with my guides i again it's almost like a doorway opens up in front of me i step through it into what looks to be a wood mm -hmm. um 
but it's like very quiet. It feels like a, an in-between place. They have to meet me there as well. That's not where they reside. So I don't know if that would be another form of liminal place. Yes, it is. Mm. Okay, so that's obviously my easiest method and form to get to. And the dreaming sort of operates quite similarly. So that's why that's working for you so well. Yeah. So because you operate in liminal space and in the dreaming, that's how you're getting into these underworld spaces. And yeah, dreaming, I've always had prophetic dreams and all sorts of things. So you might be interested to know this. And I'm very, very curious if it connects to your experiences. Everyone listening is just having to play along while we do that. <laughs> We're way off in left field now. <laughs> left hand field? <laughs> Silliness. So when you fall into there from dreams, you're approaching Tartarus. So you're seeing those kinds of creatures. Mm -hmm. When you approach the underworld through liminal space, you're approaching from what are called the gates of the sun. And the gates of the sun are these beautiful, bright, they're sometimes described as bronze or gold gates emanating this beautiful sunny light. There's often described a garden on the other side. And it's adjacent to the Elysian field. So it's a much more beautiful entrance. Mm. So I'm curious if you've seen that kind of thing when you're. Imagery. I haven't. So I've probably only gone from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued to even take more note of it as well, or even look back through my dream journals and see what else has come through from that. It's I know, fascinating. I know. I know a map is a silly thing to try and create of like this uh, like ethereal unknowable space but for me for how my mind works consider this wildly upg but that i can back up with citations <laughs> here's where i kind of took pieces of things to put it together um they're not all the same puzzle but they fit um but just thinking being able to sit there and go okay this space is adjacent to this one so if i'm doing this kind of magic these are my additional expectations. Mm. That's really helpful for me to kind of understand where I fit. It helps me see why astral travel in particular is not, it's not my strongest skill. It's just not a comfortable kind of place for me. Um, yeah, it's not something I was ever really super drawn to do either. Like read up on it, work with it or attempt to, and just, it never was like, I was like, eh, whatever. That's kind of the vibe that I had um but yeah that's it's fascinating and, it, and it's, it's funny because I know some people would say the underworld's very scary I like I like to stay in astral space because it's very safe mm. for me I find astral space kind of scary <laughs> <laughs> it feels very uncomfortable mm -hmm. so it's it's all your perception of what your magic is I think I love that you're using the word Tartarus as well in that book that I'm writing what I've done you might like this um I've it's a supernatural fiction, right? It's based on the apocryphal books of the Bible. So the biblical side you might not enjoy, but then you might because the way I've written it. But what I've done is I've created seven layers of hell and seven layers of heaven, and each correlates to one of the um, seven known planets at the time. Interesting. So fun to do. And one of those layers is Tartarus. And in my book, I've put that as the place where the Nephilim, the Nephilim, right, like reside. Um, it, oh, it was just fascinating looking at all of the, you know, uh, Jewish and Christian and um, Islamic, I guess, depictions and folklore of 
how and how different and the different names they've used. So each layer I've given a different name and a different vibe to it and they have to travel through it all. It's really fascinating. It was really fun to do. And I've actually created my own map for that, even though it feels so different because it's not like a fantasy book where you have a map like you would see at the front of Lord of the Rings. It is this weird layered thing like a cake, right? It's kind of these different layers of a cake. And I've used this, there's this, what is the website called? Because if anyone is a writer, they might enjoy it if they write fiction because I've got it open. It is called World Anvil and you can actually build out maps and all of the details and stuff that you need in your I've used this before and I never think to use it. Well, yeah, I mean, you could do it for your Liminal use, Kingdom of the Dead, all of that. I use it for tabletop games. <laughs> it's also used for that, yes. <laughs> but I've used um, it to like just get almost a visual on how they would look and how they correlate and how they talk to each other. So but speaking of tabletop RPGs and my map, there's an expression in the tabletop community that I would like to just introduce to your community mm-hmm. because I think it works real well. We use the expression unverified personal gnosis when we're talking about something that's just our magic, our experience, our experiences, but it has such a, it's got kind of a yucky vibe, right? We all feel kind of it about it. Or people think because it's a UPG, it is less valid. Correct. And I would like to dispel that. I think it takes a lot of vulnerability to share what your magic is. It's important to say it's your magic. But I think it's also important to share it. Otherwise, nobody will ever say anything new. And then we won't we won't know if someone else goes, oh, my gosh, I experienced that too. When you have enough people do that, it's no longer unverified. Exactly. Well, there's an expression in the tabletop community for something you made up yourself and didn't take from the rule set. Mm-hmm. And it's called homebrew. This is my homebrew rule. <laughs> this is my homebrew magic. <laughs> Yes. And I like it a lot. I use it in my book and I talk about how I take kind of a homebrew approach. Typically when somebody's homebrewing a game, they might borrow a rule from this game and a rule from this game and a rule from this game. And we do that in our magic. You've got a little Egypt and a little everything else, right? We all do it. And that's what makes us uniquely who we are. Mm-hmm. So homebrew. I like I that. I think it's a fun um, thing I would love to get more into that. I I did used to watch Will Wheaton's Tabletop Tuesdays <laughs> where he would talk about different like tabletop board games and things. I, I'm obsessed with Will Wheaton. I love him. I'm a big Star Trek nerd and I actually met him at a convention once and I, I, I fangirled. I stopped talking and my friend who was with me was like, Hannah, like, come on, get, get your things signed. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also just a big 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 nerd and I'm a huge fan of Supernatural mm-hmm. and I had the extreme pleasure of meeting Rob Benedict once and I did face painting for their children <laughs> so that's my big nerdy fan moment <laughs> well yeah I was um very excited he complimented the bow that I had in my hair and I nearly melted and that was pretty much that but I used to watch yep yeah, um, tabletop Tuesdays and we, I ended up buying a game that he'd recommended and it's one of our favorite games. Most people would know it's pretty old now, but it's called Settlers of Catan. It's the I'm only one we just, it is a hit continually. We took it with us up to far North Queensland. We're playing it out in the middle of the rainforest in the night, getting jumped on by cicadas and frogs and all sorts of <laughs> And it was so fun. And I, I've only ever lost two games ever in all the time. I'm very good at it. And my husband 
tries to tell everyone he's like don't trust her don't give her anything she's too strategic no don't help her and then <laughs> everyone somehow feels sorry for me they're like oh why is he being so mean here you can have my wood and I'm, you can have my bricks and I'm like thank you thank you I have won <laughs> so just a side note back into your book when do you expect it to be on shelves well I can drop this news right here exclusively the release date will be oh my gosh I forgot I have to look at my calendar I know but I want to make sure <laughs> isn't that terrible uh, drum roll very slow drum roll October 3rd October 3rd awesome oh that's exciting and this publisher very much believes in me and what I'm doing and it will also be getting a hardback limited edition beautiful beautiful foil printed cover and uh, this particular edition, unlike its possible previous Llewellyn Louise release, uh, will feature exclusively my own illustrations. So mm. it will be my own art from front to back. So that's pretty exciting. And will it be available on your website for the limited I'll, edition? I'll, I'll have some author copies, but the limited edition hardback, if you want that one, you'll want to pre-order it from Cross Crow at crosscrowbooks.com. Mm -hmm. um, it won't be available on things like Amazon. You can only get that one directly through the website, but I will most definitely have some soft covers signed on my website as well. Mm -hmm. well I think reach, I want to reach out to those fine folks and thank them for taking me on board if that makes you happy. And <laughs> um you can definitely ask them when the pre-order be up. It should be pretty soon. Yeah, awesome. I will indeed. Fantastic. So before we leave, um, if people do want to learn more about you, buy some of your amazing candles or I think, are you still doing any uh, necromancy workshops or anything like that as well? have all kinds of stuff coming up um, mm -hmm. and they can find everything on my website at mortellus.com. Um, I'm on basically every social media and link tree as a crow and the dead. And I am now on Patreon, which is very new. Saw that um, well done. Yeah, thanks. So we're doing a lot of fun stuff behind the scenes. I've got a book club going in there where we're going over necromantic source materials, which is new and fun and often silly. So come come check it out. Hang out with us. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so, so much for coming and chatting with me today. I know, you know, we could chat for hours. I know. Easily. We could. But if you would like, I have a passage up to read your 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 listeners off into the night, or, or night here for me, the day for you, I guess. Yeah, listening as well. <laughs> At night, my gaze often drifts to the twinkling memory of long dead stars as they glitter above me. Those stars that humanity wishes upon, hangs its hopes and dreams upon, that bring joy to our darknesses. I gaze outward at this memory written in light as it tells the story of a past I have never been a part of. There is beauty in death. The stars are ghosts. The night sky, a cemetery of light. It is with that in mind that I encourage you to have no fear of death. Where death is patient, it is kind. It is inevitable. Death has no need to fight against you and more often than not will fight for you, knowing it will gather you home eventually and death loves and treasures those who rail against it most of all. The healers and defenders and survivalists and necromancers and mad scientists and immortal gods. They pour everything they are into fighting it, denying it, and death adores every desperate scrap of strength and will and brilliance 
and raw determination poured out against it. And when your strength is done and all your will and brilliance run out, death gathers you close beneath a warm, dark cloak and whispers, you were magnificent, well done. Death does not seek to hasten an inevitable end and chastises those who seek to hasten it for others in death's stead. Those who would slowly and patiently plot and sow and siphon away from others. Because who are they to hasten death's domain? Who are they to deny death its time and place? And who are they to cut short these vital glories that illuminate us so? Who are they to presume upon death's will, one that is so much larger and so much longer than theirs? Who are they to call and presume that death of all beings should obey? Death is not a hunter, but a gatherer. Death is always and eternal and loves you and can afford to wait. Death will fight for you and defend you and will place its hand upon those who would speed you to its embrace. Death has no need to rush, only to greet you when you call. Death is kind and patient and above all and before all, inevitable. I love that. I think that death is not a hunter, death is a gatherer. That's powerful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Of course. Live life. Well, I will pop all of the links for Mortellus's website and as well my own website if you want to um, jump on and both our Patreons as well. So you can check those out in the description box below. Uh, reminder, if you do sign up as a Patreon, you get uncut and behind the scenes episodes of the podcast, which is really fun. And I hope wherever you are in the world today, you're all having a lovely time and we will chat with you next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>